0: Alright, well, welcome. It's good to see you all. Um, If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 23. You know, it's been so long since I've had the opportunity to preach here. uh, Since we did community uh, group church, and then we had a couple of weeks where we did why do we dot dot dot, that uh, it's been a while since we've been in Mark, so I thought it'd be better just to go ahead and preach the sermon that I did four weeks ago, just so we wouldn't miss out on it. Actually, that's not true. Uh, we're the, the passage for today is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. But it's so closely connected to the passage that we looked four weeks ago, we need to start there. We need to start reading there, kind of see how they tie together, and, uh, and to summarize what we talked about four weeks ago before we can move on ahead. Because what you'll see is that Jesus is dealing with the same issue, the Sabbath. Jesus' opponents are the same, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and the authority is the same, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And I want you guys to see that connection. So we'll start in chapter 2, verse 23, and go through 3 6. If you don't have your Bibles, we've got Bibles there in the chair, and it's page 838 in those Bibles there. Hope you'll read along with me. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, he being Jesus. And and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you... He entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Four weeks ago when we looked at this issue of the Sabbath, we saw that the Sabbath was the pinnacle of worship for, the, for Judaism in the day of Jesus, right? If you were a Jew, if you were a person of God, a son or daughter of Abraham, there were two requirements that you had. You had the circumcision and you had the Sabbath. And both of them, they were emphatic that you participated in each one. It was, it was not an option. I mean, the, the Sabbath was the sign that God gave to His people after he had freed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into, out into the wilderness, before he gave them the law, right? So the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant that he made with Moses and all the Israelites. The Sabbath was the symbol, basically, of him giving the law, giving the worship, giving the oaths, giving the covenants. This was a huge deal, and they had to observe it. I mean, this is one of those signifiers that set them apart from those who are not the people of God. And so this was a a huge deal. Um, The Sabbath, like circumcision, was this symbol of their unique relationship with God the Father. So if you were an Israelite, you were circumcised, you honored the Sabbath, period. No questions asked. And if you didn't, it was punishable by death. This is how extreme it was. These Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day they took on the responsibility of making sure everybody obeyed the law. They were basically the religious police of the day. And in in order to ensure that everybody abided by the law, they went ahead and they added some extra parameters, some extra regulations around the Sabbath to make sure that no one profaned the Sabbath, but instead they kept it holy, that they devoted themselves to the Lord, that they rested on that day. And so they added these regulations on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Two of them were that you couldn't travel farther than a kilometer on the Sabbath, and the other was that you couldn't harvest, and it didn't matter how little or how much. And so what you see is that Jesus and his disciples in particular were guilty of profaning the Sabbath according to their standards because they were traveling and because they were plucking these heads of grain. So therefore, in their minds, Jesus and the disciples had broken the Sabbath but Jesus responded to them, if you remember, by challenging their understanding of what it means to keep the law. You see, there's a right way and a wrong way to keep the law. It's not just do this and don't do that. There's more to it here. The... The whole reason God gave the law was not so that we can know when and where and how and what we are supposed to do, but it's really about the who. It's about our relationship with God. God gave us the law to reveal who He was and who we are in light of Him so that we might worship Him in a way that is honoring and pleasing to Him. It's not just about fulfilling some religious rigid requirements, some Commands and prohibitions, it goes beyond that to an intimate relationship. And so the Sabbath is about the who. And Jesus challenges their misunderstanding by saying, Listen, listen guys, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And in the process, he makes this bold declaration that they simply cannot and will not handle. He's making a a declaration of his own deity. Jesus is saying that he has authority over the Sabbath. And this is a right that belongs to God alone. And to say that you have authority over the Sabbath is to say that you have authority over the Mosaic Covenant. And to say that you have authority over the Mosaic Covenant is to say that you have authority over the Old Testament law. But who has that? Who has the authority of all those things? Who instituted all of that? God. And so Jesus is in effect saying, I have all the authority of God. I am Lord even of the Sabbath. So in chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, Jesus is challenging their understanding of who has authority over the Sabbath. These Pharisees, these religious police, did not have authority over the Sabbath. The law itself did not have authority over the Sabbath. Jesus alone has authority over the Sabbath. And so today, into today's text, Jesus is going to challenge their understanding of what the Sabbath is even for. He's getting at the true purpose of the Sabbath. You see, there's a right way and a wrong way to keep the law. The law is centered on that relationship between the Creator and the Created. Jesus has established himself as Lord over the Sabbath, therefore Lord over God's religion, God's people. So religious observance to God is now defined by our relationship to Jesus. And you can be very religious and hate Jesus. So Jesus is forcing us to do two things today. First, we have to come to terms with the true purpose of religion. And second, we have to come to terms with what we think about Jesus. So let's look at the first issue, the the true purpose of religion. Here in verses 1 and 2, we see this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. It happens on another Sabbath, in another synagogue. It happens sometimes later. And we learn from Luke's account of this passage that that Jesus had done just as He had done so many times before. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and was preaching. He was teaching from the Old Testament of the things that concerned Himself. That was His regular pattern. He's there teaching. He's preaching. He's proclaiming. It's not about healing and miracles and all this, but about a message, about the Gospel of God. It just so happened that on this occasion, there was a man there with a withered hand. This man is a bystander. He's not there seeking Jesus. He's not looking to find Jesus. He's not hoping to be healed by Jesus like we see other accounts. He's just there in the synagogue on that day. He's not pushing his way to Jesus. He just happens to be in the crowd. And verse 2 says, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. But it doesn't define who the they is. In order to figure out who they is, you have to go back to chapter 2, verse 24. They is the Pharisees. They are the Pharisees. They are there in the synagogue watching Jesus. They're wanting to see if he will heal this man so that they might accuse him of sin. They're hoping that he will do it so that he'll break the Sabbath. They want to catch Jesus in the act of breaking the Sabbath by healing this man with a withered hand. It's interesting to see that they're no longer amazed or confused by Jesus' power and authority. They expect Him to heal. Right? This is is no longer a wonder. This is no longer an astonishment. They are counting on the fact that when Jesus sees this man, He is going to heal him. Right? They expect it. It's not amazing anymore. It's, It's presumed upon. And what you see here, like so many other times in Scripture, whenever people are presented with signs and wonders and miracles, they may be in awe in the moment, but it never has has any true effect in, in inciting true faith, in instilling true faith, in, in helping them to sustain their faith. It's a flash in the pan that provides validity to what's going to happen to the truth of the message, but it has no ability to change hearts. They expected it to happen. Just like the Israelites presumed upon God's grace in delivering them miraculously time and time again throughout their history. And, and, and here, these crowds, this, there's so many people that stood face to face with Jesus and saw Him heal people, saw Him perform miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're not changed by it at all. It's merely a spectacle to them. They're entertained. That's all it is. They're there not to believe in Jesus because they see these miracles. They want to see this miracle so that they can accuse Him of sin. They're cold. They're hard-hearted towards Him. I kind of wonder if the reason why this man was there was because he received a personal invitation from one of these Pharisees. I mean, think about it. This guy's nobody. He he can't work. He he's he's a he's just you know just one of these overlooked, marginalized people in their society. He wouldn't get the the special place in the synagogue. He'd have to go stand in the back. He's nobody. But I could see a Pharisee coming up to him, say, "Hey, Mr. Nobody, Mr. crippled man with the with the broken down limb. Hey, why don't you come with me to the." to the synagogue today. I tell you what, you won't have to stand in the back like usual. You can just come right up front. You can sit next to me in the best seat in the house and see everything, hear everything. How does that sound? Because they're there. They know that He's there. They see Him. And they're hoping that He's there because they want to accuse Jesus. They don't care about this guy. There's no concern for his welfare. There's no love for this man. He's nothing to them but a pawn. Just bait to entice Jesus into what they consider to be sin. That's all that this man is to them. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And then he turned to the Pharisees, and he says to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Again, Luke's account makes it clear that the reason why Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to come to him is because he knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. He knew that they were trying to catch him in the act, that they were trying to accuse him of sin. They knew, He knew their thoughts. Just like we saw back in chapter 2, verses 1-12, through 12, when he... When the the, the paralytic man was lowered down through the roof, right? And he said, your sins are forgiven. And, And the scribes were questioning Jesus in their hearts. Jesus knew that. And he said, hey, just so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, go ahead and walk. Get up and walk. I mean, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their thoughts. But let me ask you this. In the Old Testament, who is the one who can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart? God alone. Only God can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. For example, in 1 Chronicles 28.9, David says to his son Solomon, And you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord, uh, the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. But here Jesus knows their hearts. Just like in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, where Simeon prophesies of the baby Jesus that He is appointed for the fall and rising of many, Israel, uh, many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus' purpose is there to divide between those who believe, those who follow, and those who reject. But Jesus knows their thoughts. Those who seek Him will find Him. But those who forsake Him, that reject Him, that turn away from Him, they will be cast out forever. So our position before God is more than just doing ritualistic activities. It's more than singing songs. It's more than gathering on Sunday. It's more than reading our Bible. It's more than doing all these things. Whatever our religion is, it's a matter of the heart. What is the position of our heart? Before God. This law of the Sabbath that that the Pharisees were referring to was to, again, observe the Sabbath day, the Saturday, by devoting it to the Lord and ceasing from any kind of work. The law by, by man's standard was not to do anything to help a man whose life was not at stake. Now, if you happen to go and find a man who's alongside the road bleeding... Right? You could go and stop the blood. That was lawful. But this man, this crippled man, his life was not at stake. And so by their standards, according to pharisaical law, Jesus is breaking the law by healing this man. But obedience to God is, is not simply a matter of ritualistic observance. All right, It's not just a matter of do this and don't do this. It's more than the what, the when, and the how. God's purpose in establishing the law is so that we might know Him and worship Him. So that we might reflect His character to others. So that we might walk in His ways to display His very nature. To know Him intimately and make Him known. And this goes beyond mere commandments and prohibitions. This gets at the very heart of God. We have to know God's heart. And we have to reflect God's heart. Jesus challenges them in, in His question to redefine what they understand to be lawful. It's not a matter of do this and don't do this. The lawful thing is to do good. To save life. Not to do harm or to kill. In His question, He's calling them back to the true meaning of the law. He's actually calling them back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. And in in Deuteronomy 30, what you see is that, that Moses has just given the people the law again. Deuteronomy second giving of the law, right? And so he's there giving them the law. And he's saying, listen, you guys need to follow this. Not because these are right and wrong things to do, because this reflects the very heart of God. And so he's... He's asking them not to live like their forefathers who denied God so often and had to wander in the desert for 40 years. They need to reflect God's heart. And in Deuteronomy 15, uh, chapter 30, 15 through 20, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that right in line with what Jesus just questioned them about? It says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to, to give them. God presented them with this choice. Between evil and good, whether they receive blessing or curse, life or death. Obedience to commands is only part of the issue. The real issue is will they love God with all their hearts? Will they reflect the nature and character of God? Will they want His will for them or will they seek their own will? Will they obey His voice because they know Him and hear Him? Will they hold fast to Him? Will they choose life because He is their life? Jesus is calling them back to a covenant between God and His people. Will they choose Him? Will they love Him with all their hearts? This goes beyond a mere religious system. This this goes beyond obeying God so that He will give you what you really want. It's not enough just to perform religious activity. Will you love God and share His heart? Jesus' question goes beyond Sabbath observance to actually question their entire religious system. Why are you doing this? What are you really getting at? Do you really want to know God? Or is this about you? Any kind of religion that promotes self-exaltation or self-realization or self-fulfillment or self-actualization or anything that has self at the beginning of it does not reflect the heart of God. Faith and practice that is pleasing to God is focused on the glory of God and on the good of others. We're self in that. I mean, isn't that the essence of the two greatest commands that Jesus gives us? That we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Obedience to God isn't just rigidly sticking to the law, but being conformed to the heart of God. To seek what is good, to choose life. And you can't do that without looking to other people. So if you're here and you're thinking that this is just a time between me and God and I just happen to be around other believers, you're missing the entire point. Faith is not just about the vertical, but also about the horizontal. You can't have it one way without the other. And this is why Jesus commends the high priest that actually broke the Sabbath by giving the bread of presence to David and his company. That's a good thing. He's seeking life, he's choosing life, he's doing what is good. That's commendable, and that's better than honoring some arbitrary code that that is negligent of everyone else around me. But here's the thing, to be conformed to the heart of God requires a new heart. You can't do it on your own. You have to have a new heart. A heart that these Pharisees didn't have. That's even what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 and earlier in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6. He says that they need a circumcision of the heart. They need new hearts. And this is echoed over and over and over again throughout Scripture. This is God's work to change our hearts so that we might walk in true obedience to His will. This is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. I mean, There are many passages that I could quote But in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, and this occurs after the Israelites had clearly broken that covenant in Deuteronomy 30, they've clearly abandoned God. God says this He makes this promise. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what is required for obedience to God? A new heart. And who is it that gives you, that removes that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh? God does. And what's the result? That you will be able to obey God with a sincere heart. God's people the Israelites you know despite all their efforts they could not please God no matter how much they tried no matter how rigorously they attempted to perform religious rituals and uphold the law they couldn't do it because their heart wasn't God's heart if we're going to obey God in a way that's pleasing to him we need a new heart they weren't concerned about God's glory. They weren't concerned about the good of others. They were only concerned about themselves and their standing, their glory. They, 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 they were concerned about their desires, their position before others, their veneer of piety. And this is real attracting. And I wonder how many are here today just with that, that idea. I, I just want this veneer of piety rather than to have to, a new heart, to be changed By God. The only thing that can change that heart is the work of God in your own heart. So that you can turn from yourself to follow Christ. God promises that for our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's through repentance and faith that in Jesus, that we are given new hearts, that we receive God's Spirit, that through faith in Christ, we become a new creation. We, re- And now that veneer of obedience to the law is nothing according to Galatians 5.6, but only faith in Jesus Christ expressing itself through love. That vertical and that horizontal is... Are there? We are saved by the grace of God to the glory of God for the purpose of extending God's redeeming love to others. And so if we lack love, we deny the very faith that we profess. It's not an either or. We can't just focus on the vertical to the neglect of the horizontal. And nor can we, can we just be socially active, focus on the horizontal and neglecting the truth of God's word and living in accordance to that. It requires both. We live for the glory of God and for the good of others. I mean, think about it. People are not going to be convinced of the truthfulness of our faith just because we are ritualistic, that we observe certain practices, religious practices. They're not going to be convinced because you show up here on Sunday morning. They're not going to be convinced because you try to uphold a certain moralistic code, right? That's, that's unimpressive to them. To them, they're just going to, you're just going to come off as holier than thou. But what they can't argue with is, is a deep relationship that we have between one another where love is thoroughly expressed, where they see the sense of belonging, where people come together that really have nothing in common but Christ, and that means everything. They can't deny that. Everything else doesn't matter. Your piety, you know, why are you trying to do things? And God is not impressed because you go to church or you sing songs or you try to uphold a moral code. But God is pleased, and people are convinced when we, through the work of the Holy Spirit, do what is good and we choose life so that the inward faith that we profess is demonstrated in outward action. You know, James Edwards says the test of all theology and morality, which is basically our faith, is either passed or failed by one's response to the weakest and most defenseless members of our society. You want to know what we believe, why we believe it, and and how good of people we are? You have to look at how we love those who are marginalized and are neglected and are, are just forgotten by society. This is why Jesus was compelled to heal this man. In society's eyes, this this crippled man was nobody. He couldn't work. He couldn't provide for himself. He was just a burden. But not to Jesus. Jesus sought good and he chose life. And this is why the Pharisees proved that their faith was useless because this man was nothing more than a pawn to them. They didn't display God's heart for this man. The reality is, what we believe ought to affect the things that we love. It ought to affect the, the things that we do. It ought to affect who we are. Right? If if you're the faith that you profess doesn't do that, how can you say it's a genuine faith at all? How, are, how we live and what we do ought to put the gospel on display. I mean. What does it matter? I mean, if if it doesn't, what's the point of our religion? To feel better about ourselves? To have a friend in Jesus? To feel accepted? To take pride in our own morality? Or is it to show the greatness of God? Is it to give evidence that the gospel is a life-transforming message? That it really has the power to change and that people's lives are so affected that we can come together and, man, I have no nothing in common with you, but I love you and I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you. We're that united in Christ that I'm willing to bear your burdens and you are willing to bear mine. And it's a mess, but it's good and it's glorious. And people can see that. Because there's something different about it. That is hope giving. That is life transforming. That is the gospel that only comes through a new heart. And if you don't have that, what good is your faith at all? Our faith causes us to go on mission for God. To live for the glory of God and the good of others. Rather than seeking glory for myself. And this is the purpose of true religion, to seek good, and to choose life. And so the Pharisees, like the Pharisees, Jesus is pushing us to a decision. He is drawing a line in the sand. You see, silence is not an option for us. Jesus is driving the point, you are going to have to come to terms with who He is. We're all forced to make a decision about Jesus. Look again at verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You see, the Pharisees were trying to avoid answering Jesus' question. They tried to remain in indecision. But Jesus wouldn't let them. He forced them to make a decision about Himself. They had to draw a conclusion about Him. Is He who He says He is? Or is He something else? Jesus' reaction to their attempt at silence was to look around at them with anger, grieving their hardness of heart. This looking around is indicative of an authoritative pronouncement. So Jesus is going to sovereignly force the issue. Though they remained silent, they were by no means indifferent. The thoughts of their hearts were truly revealed; it gave them away, and Jesus knew it. They had hardened their hearts against Him. When Jesus saw that, He was angered. He was He was righteously angry. There was no sin in His anger, but He was also deeply grieved. He was sorry that they had rejected truth time and time again though although he had had continually pointed them to the truth they have hardened their hearts against him and so you see that the hardness of the Pharisees is almost complete it's interesting to see this this digression you know they began just like the crowd amazed and confused by Jesus power and by his authority but it didn't didn't end there Soon they began to question Jesus in their hearts, begin to wonder about Him. And then they they began to incite others to ask questions of Jesus directly. They they questioned Jesus' followers, right? Hey, why, why is Jesus doing this? And eventually they began to question Jesus openly. Until you get to the point today where they so hated His answers, His responses, that they were ready to kill Him. Here you have a biblical example of this downward spiral of unbelief. The reality is, we don't stay neutral. We can't stay in indecision. We can't stay silent on the issue of Jesus. Right? You are either going to go towards Him or you are going to go away from Him. You cannot stand on some proverbial fence. Right? You're either going to hold fast to him, or you're going to harden your heart against him. It's one way or the other. There are no other options, and the truth will be revealed. (coughs) Verses 5 and 6 states, And Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees, they went out, and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus confronted their hearts and immediately they went out and conspired with the Herodians. These are Roman supporters. These are people that like the fact that Herod was king because they were profiting from it, which basically means that they were vile traitors in their eyes. right? They were enemies to the Pharisees who were trying to uphold the true people of God. These people are selling out, but yet they're willing to conspire with these traitors. In order to see Jesus put down. That's how much they hated him. They didn't just want him to leave town. They just didn't want him to shut up. They wanted to obliterate him. They wanted to annihilate him. They wanted him wiped off the face of the earth. Right? This is contempt. They hated him. And they were willing to partner with their enemies to make sure that it happened. The amazing thing is that the, the irony of these Pharisees is just thick throughout Mark. It's unbelievable. You know, every time they try to accuse Jesus of something, they end up finding themselves guilty of the very accusation. I mean, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, they tried to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. But because they were arguing against Jesus, they found themselves guilty of blasphemy against Jesus. In verses, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, they charged him with carousing with sinners. But because they were self-righteous sinners, they were guilty of doing the same thing. Right? In chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, they claim that Jesus lacked devotion to God's purposes because He did not fast. When in fact, it was they who were blind to God's purposes and were unfaithful to those purposes. And then in chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, they tried to indict Jesus of breaking the Sabbath when in fact, they were trying to be lords over the Sabbath. They didn't like that He was claiming to be Lord over the Sabbath because they wanted that for themselves. And then here today, they were trying to accuse him of working on the Sabbath because he was willing to do good and to choose life when they in turn went out on the Sabbath and began to plot to kill him. In every single way, they proved themselves guilty of every charge they brought against Jesus. And I just want you to know, if you go against Jesus, you're going to lose. He's he's blameless. He's going to be blameless. You will not win that fight. So you're going to have to decide whether you love him or whether you hate him. So one way or the other. There is one other person in this story that is faced with a decision. Will he choose good? Will he choose life? It's the man with the withered hand. You know, Jesus said to him, come. He didn't have to stand up and come, but he came. Jesus said, stretch out your hand, and he did, and he was restored. But that man was left from an option. And he was there, remember, as an innocent bystander. He wasn't expecting to be put on the hot seat. He wasn't expecting to be confronted by Jesus. He wasn't there to be healed. He was just there. Just happened to be there. But yet he too was confronted by Jesus. And he had to draw a conclusion. You know, Jesus is either a liar, a glutton, a lawbreaker, a sinner, a lunatic, or He's Lord. But you are going to have to decide. Silence and indifference simply is not an option. I mean, right now, you have been confronted by Jesus. Will you choose either good or harm to save life or to kill? It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough just to come to church and sing songs and read our Bibles and try to be good people. That's not enough. You have to make a decision about Him because you can be religious. You can be very religious and still hate Jesus. Some of you have come here today and you're much like that man with a withered hand. You didn't really know what to expect. Maybe you're here because you recognize that you're broken, that you have a need. Maybe that you're searching for God in some form, right? But, but you didn't really expect To have to come to decision on him today, but the reality is, Jesus has confronted you. What do you believe about him? You're not left able to sit on the fence about who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him. You are going to have to decide: either he's Savior and Lord, or some kind of liar, lunatic, a demon from hell. You're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. But you've got to choose. You've got to choose. Mark attests to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That He has God-given authority to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, to forgive sins, to have authority over God's law. We're about to see that Jesus has authority over nature and even death itself. And so you have to come to terms with who He is. Is He who He claims to be? Is He something else? And if so, you're obligated to respond. Either to follow Him or to follow your own way. It's one or the other. There's no third option. Others, probably most of us here, are much more likely to be the Pharisees. We make a regular habit of coming to church, we make a regular habit of of seeking God in some form, you know, that and maybe we're we're very religious about it. And we're doing it all the time. But again it comes back to why. What's the true purpose in it? Why are you, why are you here? I mean, our, our faithful practice of religious rituals mean nothing if our hearts are far from God. If our desires are not His desires, if our will is not he, His will, if we don't love the things that He loves, if we don't seek His glory and, and the good of others, but instead seek our own glory, God is not honored in that. But we keep doing our religious deeds because we think that God will owe us. Or we just think that it's the right thing to do. Friends, I do not want you to assume on your position before God. It's not enough to grow up in church. It's not enough to come here and sing some songs. You know, It's not enough to, to pray some prayers say, God, please give me what I want. And not be changed by it. To not be given a new heart. To not want the same things that he wants. You know, I'm, I, uh, I just started reading this book, March of the Messenger, by J. Max Stiles. And I commend it to you. It's all about knowing, lo- living, and speaking the gospel. And he has a chapter in there on assuming the gospel. And we do it all too often. He tells a story about Kevin Ruse, I think is the guy's name. He was a, he was a liberal, uh, agnostic a student from Brown University that decided that he was going to write a paper on evangelical Christianity. It was kind of a, a cultural anthropology paper, and so he transferred to Liberty University, a conservative evangelical university. And he went there, and people just assume that because he went there, he was a Christian. He he walked the walk, he talked the talk, but they never asked him about the gospel. They never looked to see evidences of God's grace in his life. They end up like asking him to be prayer leader and to do all this thing. They, they were amazed that he could sing Jesus paid it all from memory. He didn't have to look at the words. so this guy has to be a Christian. When in reality, he wasn't. He didn't believe. And guys, that could be you. Honestly, that could be you. You've been confronted by Jesus right now. Is he Savior and Lord? But do you have new hearts? Is your affection growing to be more like that of God? Do you love the things that God loves? Do you want the things that God wants? Are you willing to lay down your life for the glory of God and the good of others? Or is this all about you? Is your life all about you? You've got to ask that question honestly, and you've got to come to an answer. (coughs) Indifference is not an option. There is no third option. As we've seen, you can be very religious and you can hate Jesus. Don't harden your heart against him. Seek what is good. Choose life in Jesus Christ the Lord. There is no third option with Jesus. Either you're going to love him or you're going to hate him. Do you love him? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this um, heart-probing reminder of what it means to follow Jesus. God, I pray we don't leave here without answering that question. Do we love Jesus or do we hate him? Because either way it's going to cost us. God, I I just pray that Your Spirit would be at work now in in helping us to discern our thoughts, to to discern uh, what's on our hearts, and that we might be transformed by the truth of Your Word, that we would come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we would place our faith in Him, that we would love Him, that we would lay down our lives, and we would take up our cross and follow after Him. That we would not continue to seek our own wills, our own desires, our own glory, our own vanity. Because it's meaningless, it gets us nowhere. God, may, may we realize how we can be Pharisees. Either Pharisees in legalism or Pharisees in licentiousness. And I pray that if we've gone to church for a long time, we've recognized that, you know what, I've never really placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we would do it today, that we would not remain proud. If we're here, we've never done that before. This is an opportunity. This is your grace to us. We've been confronted by the Lord and Savior who stands willing to save us. So come and doubt no more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.